Good morning. Uh, looking for Matt Ackerman. I think he just dipped out. We good? We good on you? Want me to? We good? Okay. Um, welcome. Uh, happy Easter. He is risen. Uh, he is risen indeed, uh, and it is a joy to be with you. Uh, we had a sunrise service this morning uh, down at Severe Park uh, at about 6 a.m. for the real Christians. Um, so now that we've done the real service of the day, no, it was, uh, it was glorious. Uh, I am on my fifth cup of coffee, and uh, I'm ready to go. So it's going to be a good sermon. Um, we're going to dive into our text today. This text continues in our spring series, but also is very fitting for today. We're looking at encounters with Jesus. Um, and so if you will, uh, we're going to turn to an encounter with the, the resurrected Jesus by the first witnesses to the resurrection, uh, these three special ladies. So uh, turn with me now to Mark chapter 16, starting in verse 1. And uh, if not, we will, it'll be on the screens for you to follow along. Eight short verses recorded for us by Mark, says this, when the Sabbath was passed, that means it's Sunday morning, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. Very early on, the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. So word of the Lord, amen. So these three women, uh, these first three witnesses to the resurrection, they're actually mentioned three separate times in like an eight-verse stretch. They were the three women who were at the crucifixion when Jesus was pronounced dead. They were the three women who saw him be carried down. They're mentioned by name from the cross and carried away to the tomb, and they are the three women who witnessed his resurrection. These first witnesses, these first Christians these women, these eyewitnesses, named intentionally by name, by Mark the author to say, hey, if you don't believe me, go talk to these women. I'm telling you their names three times in eight verses so that you can go cross-check me. This is how historical accounts were written. This is not a legend. This is, this is recorded for you and for the original readers to say, hey, go check with Mary, Mary, and Salome. They, they, they will tell you they've seen it all. They saw the death, they saw the burial, and they saw the empty tomb. We would certainly not be gathering here uh, to worship this Jesus if he had stayed dead. Many of you were with us on Friday at our Tenebrae, our Good Friday service, where we meditated on the death of Jesus and ended that service in darkness. We would, uh, we would stay in darkness. We would stay sad at the death of Jesus. We would not be here worshiping Jesus if he were still dead because here's what these women, here's what we believe because of the account of Mark and these women that no other world religion even dares make this claim, that their leader, the leader of our religion, is still alive. No one would be ludicrous enough to make that claim unless it were true. So today we're gonna read about this first encounter with the living Jesus, 
And we're gonna see that this resurrected Jesus brings with him some resurrection power. That the New Testament's very clear about this, that the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is alive and well in you, Christian. It says that the same spirit that raised him is living in you. And so what kind of resurrection power does he bring to you? And we're just gonna look at two things. Had three things on Friday, but I cut one. You're welcome. We're gonna look at two things, two things that the living Jesus resurrects in us. The first is that the living Jesus resurrects our hearts. The second is that the living Jesus resurrects our hope. So first, the living Jesus that resurrects our hearts. Brief recap, these three women go to the tomb. They bring spices with them. They're going to anoint the dead body, which was Jewish custom. They're going to anoint it. They didn't, they didn't get a chance because of when Jesus died on Friday. It should have been done before, they, before the body entered the tomb, but the Sabbath hit. They could no longer go at night on Friday night. And so now they're here. First thing they can, first, now the Sabbath is over. Now we can come and anoint his body. They're on their way to see a dead Jesus and they encounter a man in white, a man in a white robe. This angel, this man in white, the angel, the messenger, that's what the word angel means. Angel is just a messenger on behalf of Jesus, tells them he is not here. He's alive. He told you about this. He said it multiple times. If you destroy the, I will destroy the temple in three days and I will, I will rebuild it. I will, I will go to Jerusalem and I will give my life away. And on the third day, I will rise again. He tells them multiple times this is going to happen. Angel saying this is what he was talking about. He rose again. But if we were just to kind of breeze through this story, because the, 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 the tendency, if we're familiar with the story, is just to kind of read the resurrection account and say, well, what does this mean for us? Why does this matter for us? We might miss a few details of this communication between the angel and the women. The women were tasked to go back to the disciples and tell them the news. And so what we miss, though, is this little note that Mark wants us to see because only Mark mentions it, this little note of the message that the angel gives to the women and what they were supposed to relay on to the disciples who were hiding out and afraid at this point. So reread with me verse six and seven. This is the message from the messenger, the angel, to the women to share with the disciples. Verse six and seven says, he says to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He is risen, he is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Tell the disciples and tell Peter. That little phrase, and tell Peter, only Mark records that for us. In all the resurrection accounts, there's all, uh, they all record these women being the first eyewitnesses and they all have a message to give back to the disciples, but only Mark records for us and tell Peter. So this angel who's relaying a message, that's literally what an angel is, that is what the word angel means, is messenger. They are, they are relaying, this angel is relaying a message from Jesus. His message from Jesus is this. Make sure when you tell the disciples, make sure Peter's in the room. Make sure when you relay the message from me that this tomb is empty, I want Peter to be there. Make sure Peter knows he's still invited. Make sure Peter knows he's still on the team. Make sure Peter knows that when Jesus meets the disciples in Galilee, he wants Peter there. Why did Jesus do that? Why did Jesus want to make sure that the angel messenger included Peter by name when relaying the message to the women? If we go back just a few pages in the story, literally in the book of Mark, just a chapter or two before, we find Peter in his darkest hour. 
Right before the Last Supper, Peter swears to Jesus, I will never fall away from you. I will never back down from uh, owning you. I will never fall away. You're telling us that one of us will fall away, and I'm telling you, Jesus, it's not going to be me. I will never disown you, Peter says. He swears to him. And Peter, Jesus tells to Peter, actually, before the rooster crows, crows twice, you are going to betray me three times. And Peter rebukes Jesus. You don't know what you're talking about, JC. I'm not backing down from you. I will never fall away from you. And then Jesus gets arrested in the garden. Peter's fallen asleep on him multiple times. And Jesus gets arrested, carried away to his trial. And Peter kind of sneaks around. He sneaks into the Sanhedrin courtyard. He's sneaking in to try to hear how the trial is going. And he wants to know how it's going. And around this fireside, as they're listening in for the trial, trying to figure out what's going to happen to Jesus, Peter gets approached. Peter gets approached by multiple people and said, hey, you're, you're a Galilean. Jesus was from Galilee. Aren't you, aren't you, one, of those, aren't you one of those disciples? No. I don't, I don't even know that guy. You thought, no, no, I don't, I don't care about that guy. I don't want anything to do with that guy. And it continues on where the people that interrogate Peter, one of them is a little girl, an eight-year-old little girl. And Peter doesn't just deny knowing Jesus to this little girl when she says, don't you know that Jesus guy that's in there? He cusses her out. He calls down curses on a little girl. I don't, want, I don't know him. I don't want him. Don't associate me with him. I want nothing to do with him. I've never, I've never met him. I don't want to meet him. I don't care about him. Do not put me in the same room or the same group as that guy. This disciple of Jesus cussing out a little girl, blatantly denying that he even knows Jesus. This rock, Jesus changes Peter's name from Simon to Peter because Peter, you're gonna be the rock on which my church is built. You're, that confession you made that I am the Christ, I'm gonna build my church on your confession, Peter. The last thing that guy does in relationship to Jesus is swear off even knowing him. I don't wanna be associated with him. I want zero affiliation with you. I don't want people to think that I know you. I want, you're not helping my image or my brand right now. I don't want you, Jesus. That's the last living interaction so far that Peter's had with Jesus. What kind of heart space do you think Peter's in with Jesus? What kind of heart space the betrayal of Peter by the fireside would have been around Friday morning? before the rooster crowed twice. It would have been around dawn. The last living interaction Peter had with Jesus was swearing him off and cussing out a little girl who would associate the two. How do you think he's doing now that his former best friend has been killed on a cross? What kind of tapes do you think he's playing in his mind about what he could have done differently? And if you could just go back and do it again, and if Jesus only knew how sorry he was, what, it, what kind of heart space do you think Peter's in as he's replaying in his own mind how the last 36 hours, 48 hours have gone? Now imagine that heart space for Peter, and now imagine that the women come back with the message from the angels in the empty tomb, and they come back to the room where all the disciples are hiding out because they're afraid, and they go, guys, you're not going to believe it. You should believe it, but you're not going to believe it. Jesus is alive, and he wants the disciples, he wants all y'all to meet him in Galilee. How do you think Peter would have responded to that announcement? You guys go. I'm good. I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah but y'all didn't do what I did. Y'all didn't, didn't swear out a little girl. Y'all didn't call down curses from heaven on yourself if someone was gonna associate you with him. I betrayed him. Yeah, he wants the disciples, but he didn't mean me. 
He wants his disciples to come meet him in Galilee, but y'all didn't do what I did to him. And they probably would have said, yeah, you're right, dude. We didn't do that. We all abandoned, but we didn't go that far. (laughs) Do you know how I know what kind of heart space Peter would have been in? Because I know what kind of heart space I would have been in. I know the heart space of the human condition. The Bible says in 1 John chapter three that our own hearts condemn us. Meaning there's a courtroom going on in your heart all the time. How you're measuring up, how you've done, how you've performed, how you've achieved, how you've obeyed, how you've disobeyed, how you've, how you've been doing. That courtroom is always going on. And in the courtroom of our own hearts, 1 John 3 says that you play prosecuting attorney and you try to play defense attorney, but you certainly play judge. And guess what verdict you always give to yourself? Guilty, condemned. Our own hearts condemn us. We know what the verdict is that we deserve. We know what the judge should say because we know all that we've done and we know all that we do. What our hearts tend to do is it, it, it will take memories from our recent or distant past and it will replay those memories for us and it will remind us just how guilty we are. And so it just leaves the evidence on the table and you don't have to be a good lawyer to know what the evidence that's stacking up means for you. When the evidence gets played, you've done this and you've done that. Remember this, remember that, remember that fantasy, remember that action, remember those words, remember how you acted, remember what you didn't do, remember how you didn't stand up, remember how you lost your rage on somebody, Remember how you, remember? And when the evidence gets laid out and remember, and it's all on the, on the table, we can't argue the evidence. And so guess what our hearts do? Our hearts condemn us. And it's into that place that the living Jesus through the angel says, tell the disciples and tell Peter. Tell the Peter who's killing himself right now. Tell Peter that I want to see him. Tell Peter that the living Jesus has invited him to come. Tell the betrayer. Tell the abandoner. Tell that guy I want him in Galilee. Charles Spurgeon, one of my favorite dead guys, preached an entire sermon on verse 7, the the inclusion of Peter, the tell the disciples and Peter. That one line Charles Spurgeon preached an entire sermon on. Hear what Charles Spurgeon says about that little inclusion of Peter being the the one named by the angel. Jesus really wanted to make sure you tell Peter. Here's what Spurgeon says. He that denied his Lord, he that cursed as he denied, he who after boisterous self-confidence trembled at the jest of a child, is he to be called? Yes. Tell my disciples and tell Peter. If any of you have behaved worse to your masters than others, you are particularly called to come to him. He bids you not stand in the background, but to come in with the rest and commune with him. Peter, where are you? The crowing of the rooster is still in your ears and the tear is still in your eyes, yet come and welcome. Come, he has forgiven you. Come, Peter, come. If nobody else should come, Jesus Christ invites you by name before any other. That's how the living Jesus resurrects a heart. A word from the living Jesus calling you by name in the courtroom of your own heart 
can resurrect where you would self-condemn. Here's the second half of the first John 3 passage where it says our own hearts condemn us. It says, but God is greater than our hearts and God knows everything. Like God knows all the evidence that isn't even on the table and he's greater than the condemnation that you give your heart. All the things you hate about yourself, all the places you feel like you should be outcast, all the places you ruminate over because of your failings, all the places you try to numb the shame by doubling down on your sin, Jesus is saying to you, Elliot, I paid for that sin. That's why I died. I paid for that betrayal. I paid for that abandonment. I paid for that fantasy. I paid for that rage. I paid for that. I didn't go to the cross for your perfections. I went to the cross for your failings. I've paid for those. And now that I'm raised, there's no more payment needed. Sin and death couldn't hold me. So now sin and death can't condemn you. That's how the living Jesus can resurrect our condemned hearts. Would you dare to believe, would you dare to open your ears this morning and hear Jesus calling you by name? You're condemning yourself. You're, you're playing judge and jury. And Jesus is saying, that's why I died. I paid for the betrayal. I paid for the abandonment. I paid for the curses so that you might come when I call. But it's not simply our self-condemned hearts that he resurrects. As wonderful as that is, as liberating as that is, Jesus can also resurrect our hope. Because it's, 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 um, it's easy for us, or it's, it's natural for us, that in the modern West, that we would, um, we would read a story of scripture and the first question we would ask is, how is this about me? <laughs> What does this have to do with me and my personal relationship with Jesus? And that's well and good. It's just a lot bigger than that. That the resurrection of Jesus does assuage your guilt. The resurrection of Jesus does mean he calls you by name and that he's paid and atoned for your sin. But the implications of the resurrection are not merely personal. They are cosmic in nature. And it may not jump off the page on the first read, but hidden in our passage is this intentional image, this intentional metaphor written by Mark. And Mark isn't the only one that uses it. All four gospel accounts, when they are talking about the resurrection and the resurrected Jesus, they use this same exact metaphor. Now they're telling a story, they're telling history, they're telling us what actually happened, but they intentionally chose their words to use the action of the resurrection and the way they would describe it as a metaphor for what the resurrection means. Look again with me at verse two. You can throw this up there. It says, now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Now again, you may not catch it or, or, or even it may not jump off the page, but all four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, as they're recounting the resurrection events, they all tell the reader, they specify that the resurrection took place on the first day of the week, not the third day since the crucifixion. Even though Jesus talked about it in, in that paradigm, I will die and then three days later I will be raised, three days later, three days later. The gospel writers want us to know that I want you, reader, to not read the resurrection as three days after an event. I want you to read the resurrection as the first event of something totally new. 
This is the first day of something new. The women came on the first day while it was still early, while the dawn was breaking. That's the metaphor. They're trying to show the reader that something has shifted, not just theologically, but cosmically. They're like, calendars need to change because something has changed in the world. Because of the resurrection, the reader needs to know that the world is now in the dawn of the first day. The first day of a new creation. Not just the first day of a week, the first day of a whole new order. The New Testament is adamant about this. Almost every single book in the New Testament describes the resurrection of Jesus this way. That this is the first of something to come. The resurrection did happen and it changed a lot and it was incredible, but it was merely the first day. It was the page turning moment for something that's coming later. This is the first day. This is the firstborn. This is the first fruit. Something else is coming after this. This is the first day of sin and all of its curses being completely defeated. This is the first day of a kingdom that's coming that will never be stopped from coming in full. This is the first day, this is the dawning. If you had been a real Christian and come with us to the sunrise service this morning, you would have seen that while Matt and Joseph and Daryl were setting up and I was drinking coffee, while they were setting up everything, it was dark, the moon was out, it was pitch black. And then the sun began to rise and the dawn began to hit and the night began to get scattered. That image, that's why we do a sunrise service and we need the space, but that's why we do a sunrise service because the sunrise service is, it's, it's us seeing the metaphor that every gospel writer wants us to see. It's the first day of a new creation. The sun's beginning to rise on the darkness. The sun is rising and the world will be made new. How can you be totally sure that when you look at all the atrocities inside of you and outside of you? How can you be sure that God someday is gonna make it all right? I don't mean just wish for it. I don't mean pie in the sky. I don't mean escapism. I don't mean cheesy hallmark. I don't mean, how, how, how can you know that everything will be made new one day? How can you be absolutely sure that in spite of your own failures and in spite of your own lapses, God will scatter the night away. How can you not just wish for it, but how can you be sure that the world will be set right again someday? How can you be sure that when you face death, it's not the end? Because there's an empty tomb, which means the story of the world is not over. That was perfect. The empty tomb is the first day of a new creation. Jesus didn't rise again just for your own personal salvation so you could go and dance on harps and be on clouds one day. Jesus rose again so that he could remake the world. Golly, no, keep her in here, please. That's perfect timing. Keep him in here, I don't know, but keep the baby screaming. Jesus has secured forever by his resurrection that all the future promises of God will come true. He's remaking the world. He's the firstborn of a new creation. He's the first fruits of a harvest to come. He's the down payment and the dowry to marry his bride at the great wedding feast. He is the guarantee of all that is to come. 
a life in a world without sin, a life in a world without sorrow, a life in a world without suffering, without fear, without strife. A kingdom has come and it will not be thwarted. How can you know that? Because Jesus rose again. And the resurrection of Jesus is the dawn of the first day of the new world order. One day, God will make all things new. One day, sin and sadness and sorrow will cease with no chance of returning. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, you have the actual ability to look at the darkest night of your soul or the darkest night of the soul of the world and believe that that storyline will not get the final word. If Jesus is alive, then you can dare to hope. Hope that this first day of the new creation has happened. Hope that when Jesus walked out of the tomb, it was like the sun rising on the world. And it's not the seventh day of the new creation yet. We're not there yet. It hasn't been completed yet. But because the first day has dawned thousands of years ago, the sun really will scatter out the darkness one day. Because of the empty tomb, you have the ability to dare to do something that no one else in the world can do, and that is to grieve and to weep and to be sorrow-filled and do it with hope. You can smile through your tears because you know that the tears aren't writing the story King Jesus is. And if you don't believe that, if you don't know about that, I'm looking at people in the room who have walked through that, who have stared at caskets, who have walked through divorces, who have addictions, who have cancer, who have heartache, who have depression, and they know that this storyline means the dawn of the new day has begun and it's not over yet. The seventh day will come. The seventh day will end with the, the sun shining out all of the darkness and pushing it all back. The story is not done. In the face of deepest sadness, in the face of deepest sorrow, we can be confident that the king will return one day and he will complete what he started. And when the seventh day hits, when the restoration happens, when the consummation happens, it means all that aches you will be healed. It means all that threatens you will be quieted. It means all that taunts you will be redeemed and you will be with Jesus and he will wipe away all of your tears. At the end of the darkness, you'll burn your chains up and you'll be free. Would you dare, because of the living Jesus, to apply that promise to the darkest place in you and around you? I'm talking about the place that you hide from others. I'm talking about the place that has caused more tears in you than you would ever wanna share with anybody. I'm talking about the place that you've been trying so hard to forget. I'm talking about the place that has caused such a traumatic tearing in you. Would you dare to believe that at the end of this darkness, you will burn your chains and you will be free? That's called hope but who hopes for what they already have, Romans says. We don't, if, we, if we already have it, we don't hope for it, but if we hope for it, we wait for it with patience. At the end of the darkness, you'll burn your chains and you'll be free. Joni Erickson Tata, she's a famous author. She was in an accident when she was 18 years old. She's now a quadriplegic, paralyzed from the neck down. She spent her entire adult life in a wheelchair. She's written many books, many of you have probably read them. I was reading an article by her this week 
And she talked about when she first got in her accident, um, she was 18, and so her family had grown up at this Episcopalian church her whole life, very high church, a lot of liturgy in, in the service. And she realized, oh, now that I'm in a wheelchair and I, I, can't, I can't move my body, now I feel even more alienated in this Episcopalian worship service because there's a moment in every worship service in the Episcopalian church where everyone in the room gets out of their seats and bends down and kneels on the kneelers to pray. So every week, this would just drive home the fact that she was in fact in a wheelchair and her body was in fact broken. She couldn't bow down to pray. And now she's the highest person in the room. Everyone else is kneeling down. She looks weird. She looks awkward. She's feeling like everybody's staring at her, just reminding her of the awful, horrific tragedy that she was living. So she'd burst into tears every week. So she's writing about, hey, potentially I need to find a new denomination, like go to some horrible denomination like Presbyterian or something. Like I need to, I need to, I gotta, I gotta find something where they're not going, we're Presbyterian, okay? If you're new with us, I'm making fun of us, okay? But if, if you, if, if she's, she's basically saying, I can't do this every week where I, I'm reminded every week by my limitations and by my crippling through the worship service. But then one day she said, as the priest called everyone down to kneel, as she was about to burst into tears again, for some reason she said she actually decided, I, I will pray the prayer that they're all praying. I'll, I'll get out of my own head and my own self-condemnation and my own despair, and I'll pray what they're praying even though I can't kneel. And she realized that the prayer that she was praying was about the resurrection and the hope that the resurrection of Jesus gives to the sufferer. And it suddenly hit her. In this article, she essentially says this. She says, I suddenly realized that when I get to the wedding feast of the Lamb, when the darkness is over and the seventh day has hit and the consummation, the restoration of all things has happened, when the sun has really scattered all the darkness, one day, the first thing I'll be able to do on my resurrected legs is to drop down on grateful, glorified knees. And I'll kneel quietly before the feet of Jesus. And then I'm gonna get up on my feet and I'm gonna dance. Can you imagine the application of that level of hope to someone like that? Can you imagine the hope that the resurrection promises to give to someone who's depressed? Can you imagine the, the, the hope that the resurrection gives to people who in Ukraine are being invaded and, and, and bombed daily? Can you imagine the hope the resurrection gives to the refugee, to the cancer patient, to the addict? Can you imagine the hope that the resurrection gives to people who need it to be real? No other religion, no other philosophy other than the biblical promise of the resurrection would ever dare to promise us not just new bodies, not just new minds, not just new hearts. No other religion can give you the hope of an entire new creation. Only the gospel of Jesus, only the empty tomb can offer such hope to hurting people like us. So if you can't kneel, if you can't dance, in the resurrection, you will. If you know that this is not the only world, if you know that this body is not your only body, if you know that this life is not your only life, one day all of your tears will be wiped. One day you won't ever lose or bury another loved one. One day you won't have prodigal children that run away. 
One day you won't be addicted. One day you won't wonder if you're lovable. One day you won't have any fear or anxiety. One day. Do you realize that the empty tomb happening on the first day of the week, early in the morning, the symbolism of that, like watch it tomorrow morning. Watch a sunrise and not just marvel at the creator God who makes, who causes the sun to rise. Watch it for its metaphorical power. That's what's happening in the world. And one day the darkness really will be scattered. One day the darkness really will be dispelled and the empty tomb promises you that you can risk hoping in that. Empty tomb really can resurrect your heart and the empty tomb really can resurrect your hope. What was merely the dawn of the first day, one day will come in full. The night will scatter and the living Jesus is our proof. Let's pray. Jesus, um, we would dare to believe that you call us by name. Our self-condemned hearts need a greater voice than our own to call us out of the courtroom. That what you did on Friday was confirmed on Sunday when you walked out. And you started a whole new regime And as my friend Daryl says, the tomb is empty, but the throne is not. And one day you'll get off your throne and you'll return to this world and you'll bring the light with you and there will will be no more night. And so as those who have been called out by you by name, would you help us to live in the reality of that hope? Would you resurrect our hearts and resurrect our hope this morning? We pray in your name, amen.